Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 9 as we continue on in this glorious letter given to us by our brother Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We are picking up where we left off last week. That's going to have us in verse 19 as we begin today. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this pure, this perfect gift that you have given to us, that by your spirit working through your word, we have been called from death to life. We've been called out of our slavery, out of our bondage to sin and death and into freedom and life. Lord, by your Spirit's work through your word, blind eyes are made to see and deaf ears made to hear. We pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes this morning through your word for your glory. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been swimming in deep theological waters, in the the deep water of the ocean of God's sovereignty, specifically as it relates to divine election these last few weeks as we have come into Romans chapter 9. And you might feel like you're in totally over your head, overwhelmed by the immensity of the ocean around you. If you're feeling overwhelmed, let me encourage you. Let me remind you of something that I hope you find encouraging, and that's this. We, we shouldn't assume that it will be easy to study the infinite, almighty creator God. We shouldn't assume that our puny brains are going to find that a simple task, that, that somehow we're just going to know everything, that somehow our gut feeling is always going to be right, that somehow we're never going to have questions or have things that we just don't understand yet or never be challenged by something that we learn of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. There's a great uh, Scottish reformer, John Knox, said, no theologian's ever more than about 80% right. So that's about a C plus. So take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. Augustine said, it's God we're studying. And we do not understand him, for if we could fully understand him, he would not be God. So it's okay. It's okay to have questions. Take a deep breath. It's okay if this last few weeks has been challenging for you. But God has revealed himself in his word. We should study it. 
to show ourselves well approved. We, we should apply our minds to the truth of God revealed in his word, even if it's challenging, even if it's hard, even if it raises questions or unsettles us a little bit. This is all the more important as we study these particular truths because this attribute of God that we call sovereignty, especially as it relates to our election as his people, these truths are glorious and good. These are wonderful, glorious truths, but our feelings and our frail human understandings might try to convince us otherwise. They might try to make us feel uneasy about them. They might try to make us feel like they're bad or like they are unfair. And so, friends, let's together submit our minds and our understanding to the living, inerrant word of the sovereign God. Amen? Not to the word of this fallible, deeply flawed man standing in front of you. Not to the word of theologians from years past. To the word of God, we submit ourselves. Last week, we read some of the most challenging words in all of the New Testament. For example, where we ended last week, verses 17 and 18, it tells us, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, verse 18 says, then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That, friends, is deep truth. Deep truth of the sovereignty of our God. If you remember from last week, if you were here with us, Jonathan Edwards' definition of the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is God's absolute, independent right of disposing of all creatures according to his own pleasure. In other words, God can, as the creator and sustainer of all things, as an infinitely free being, God can choose to save some and condemn others. God can choose to show mercy to some and judgment to others. God can call some for heaven and leave some for hell. God can choose to glorify himself in his justice and judgment of sin or in his astounding grace and mercy in salvation. And he's free to do either thing and he's glorified in either thing. That's what it means for God to be free, for God to be God, for God to be sovereign. And so Paul anticipated, as we saw last week, the question that is always raised 100% of the time when any of these things are discussed Anytime God's sovereignty is discussed, particularly as it relates to election, which again is a Bible word, so it's one of those words we shouldn't be afraid of, we should embrace. But anytime we talk about this topic, the accusation arises 100% of the time, that's not fair. That is not fair. And so... He began in our verses last week in verse 14 by asking this question, putting this question out there that, that always comes. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul's answer is emphatic, as emphatic as he can be, by no means. In other words, how dare you even ask that? How dare you, frail creature, ask a question like that? Is God being unjust? Paul's exposing the absurdity of this accusation against the doctrine of election by saying, in essence, look, mankind's already condemned. It's not a matter of a whole bunch of really good people and God chooses to condemn some of them because he's capricious. 
No, Paul says, mankind's already condemned. The whole lot of you. All of us condemned. Humanity is already sinful. Humanity already wants nothing to do with God. And so God doesn't have to do anything in order to cause unbelievers to disbelieve him. They already do. The world already rebels against God. God doesn't have to act on them for them to do that. They already reject him all by themselves. He has to do nothing for people to disbelieve and continue on in their sin and rebellion, but he does have to intervene in order for anyone to believe. That's what Paul has been revealing to us as we've gone through this book of Romans. Now he's making it crystal clear and spelling it out for us. It's the reason that the doctrine of election destroys our pride and elevates our view of God. We would not choose God on our own. He he must act upon us. It, It produces worship in us. It motivates us to serve God with our lives as living sacrifices, as Paul is going to go on to speak to us about in the book of Romans, as he applies these truths to the lives of the believer, that the doctrine of election exalts the glorious mercy and grace of God because everyone is under condemnation. Everyone is a sinner by birth and by choice. Everyone suppresses the truth about God. No one seeks after God. No one desires to please God. This is the condition of humanity in our depravity. There in that pit that Paul describes for us in such graphic terms in the early chapters of Romans, of rebellion and filth, hatred for God, happy to be there, not only unable to free ourselves, but not wanting to be freed. And yet God chooses some. He reaches down into that pit, pulls them up, shows to them mercy and grace, making them his own. This is the doctrine of election. Well, it's no, it's no capricious God. It's no God who just does things on a whim. It is God actively saving people, and it magnifies the glory and the grace of God. Only God could do this. Only God could save. And so now as we come to verse 19, Paul addresses the other objection that always comes up. Objection number one, accusation number one, this isn't fair. Accusation number two, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who could resist his will? So so here's the accusation that's coming to Paul that Paul's addressing. Paul, if you're saying God chooses his elect, his people, according to his own will, If God has done so before man ever cooperated at all, if it is in fact God's will which moves man's will to believe in him, then how could God possibly hold the unbeliever accountable since he didn't choose them in the first place? How could God come to the pit, pull some people up, and then look at the people who are still down in the pit and say, and now you're going to be judged for that? When God isn't he didn't lift them out of the pit. And so the accusation that comes is, that's not fair on on God's part to do that. It's not fair for him to judge those people because they could only get out if he plucked them out and he didn't choose to pluck them out. By the way, let's just be clear. Both of these accusations prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, irrefutably prove this really is what Paul's teaching. If you've been struggling the last couple weeks going, I think I'm with the critics. This is not fair. This is not right. 
This can't really be what the Bible teaches. In fact, I've heard that's not what the Bible teaches. I'll just say to you, these accusations Paul's addressing prove beyond a shadow of a doubt this is exactly what Paul's teaching. He's teaching divine, sovereign election, the, God, the right of God to deal with his creatures however he wants, in whatever way he wants, according to his own good pleasure. There are, there are many who try to wiggle around what Paul's saying here, because we all have to deal with words like predestination. That's in the Bible. We have to deal with words like election. That's in the Bible. We have to deal with the things Paul's saying here. So what gets taught very often, and what many of you have been taught, is God looks through the corridor of time into the future he sees who's going to believe in, the, in him, and he goes back and predestines them based on that. He simply elects whoever he sees is going to choose him. He calls on those that he learns will call on him. Now, I just intentionally used a word there that should have made red flags just start waving vigorously in your head. Because God doesn't learn anything, ever. But the, but the idea driving this teaching is we have a core commitment to man's absolute free will. Man's absolute freedom. We are committed to that before we ever open our Bibles up. And so whatever we read in our Bible is going to be looking through the lenses of the pair of glasses we've got on that say free will on them. And so we come to what Paul says here and we go, i got to fit this in with this this thing I'm committed to already. And so we come up with this idea of God looking through the corridor of time. What this does, though, is make man's free will primary and God's foreknowledge is just a matter of him looking into the future and seeing what we are going to choose. His foreknowledge has no connection to intention, no connection to purpose on his end. It is just a learning of what's going to happen in the future because of the choices of free creatures. Now, we don't usually think of it that deeply. We don't usually think through the implications of the things we have said or been taught. But I hope as you hear that explained, something in you is going, that's not the God of the Bible. If it's true, it means God learned something. And that, friends, is a heresy. It is a gross false teaching to say that God learns something. That man had to act so God would know who was his. Does that sound like the God of the Bible? I'll tell you it's not the God of the Bible. It, it is a gross heresy to say that God learns something. God never learns anything. And, and more than that, if that's true, Paul's answer here doesn't make any sense at all. If, if that's really what's being said, the accusation comes, Paul, that's not fair. What you're saying isn't fair, that God chooses whoever he wants, not based on anything they do. He just picks one and not another. That's not fair. And, and Paul, God could never hold that other one accountable for anything. That's absolutely unjust and unfair. If this was really what Paul was teaching, how would Paul respond? No, friend, you misunderstand. That's not what I'm saying at all. Right? That's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't respond like that. He addresses these accusations because they are understanding him correctly and they hate it. And so Paul addresses them without 
sovereign election, Romans 9, most of it is not necessary. We would not need it in our Bibles. We would need one sentence. You misunderstand. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what Paul does. If man simply chooses God, then God would never be accused of being unfair. If God just predestined those he looked into the future and learned would choose him, no one would ever complain, well, then who can resist his will? So the fact that Paul is addressing these objections means 100% this is exactly what Paul is talking about. The fact that Paul is having to address these complaints is proof that Paul views God as entirely sovereign in election. Now, you can choose whether you want to agree with Paul or not, but understand who it is you're arguing with and what it is you're arguing with. Frail human reason finds this totally unacceptable. That's why Paul's addressing these concerns, and it's why the same concerns that are in writing for us in Romans 9 are the same arguments we make and think we've come up with the deal-breaker argument. It's because our frail human understanding hates this. God only seems fair to us if we are sovereign and he is not. That's the only thing that seems fair to us. If, if the human mind, the human will, determines our eternal destiny, then God seems fair. But if it's God who determines our eternal destiny, we feel like that's not fair, like that is not just. But again, friends, salvation is not a matter of fairness, it's a matter of mercy. It's a matter of kindness and grace. You don't want the justice you deserve. I drove to pick up Hannah from school for Thanksgiving week. She's here with us. Everyone look at her. Oh, she's beautiful. I will pay for that for sure. If I had been pulled over by a police officer... I wouldn't have, because I was speeding, I wouldn't have looked out my driver's window at him as he stood there on the highway and said, I demand justice and fairness from you, sir. Because justice and fairness demands I pay a penalty for my transgression. Oh, you don't want that. It's a matter of mercy. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter of, of something you don't deserve that God would give to you. No one deserves to be saved. No one deserves God's mercy. No one deserves grace. That's what those things are by their very nature. Well, what about this question in verse 19? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That is a great question. It is a great question as we are trying to wrap our minds around this enormous teaching that Paul is giving us. But I'll just give you a warning right away. Paul's response to this question isn't going to sit any better with our frail human understanding than the answer to the previous accusation were. His answer to the previous accusation of that's not fair, and his answer to why does he still find fault, who can resist his will, are pretty similar in that he doesn't really answer the question at all. Instead, he issues a rebuke to those accusing questions themselves and the thinking that drives them. So we're going to look at this rebuke in this, in this passage. It, Paul issues this rebuke in three questions. Rebuke number one, who are you to challenge God, Paul would say. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
So these questions that always come up, these questions that come to the natural human mind, that is not fair. How can God even hold anyone responsible for anything? And Paul's first response is not to go, well, let me explain to you how this works. No, Paul says, who do you think you are? This is God we're talking about. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? James Montgomery Boyce says, Paul is saying, in effect, that this objection rises out of rebellion in the human heart against the sovereignty of God. He's right. He's right. Gib Martin, in his commentary, says the truth is we want the last word. And we start exercising that pagan, self-centered attitude very early in life. The final word. We think we have the right to challenge God. Very often on our family vacations, we end up at Universal Studios in Orlando. It's just one of our favorite places to go. But one great thing about theme parks and zoos and any of those kind of places is they give you a wonderful opportunity to watch children act like absolute monsters. Whining and complaining and talking back and yelling at their parents. And usually it's because they want something or they want to do something and their parents had the audacity to tell them no. How dare you? Human nature asserts itself very early in life, does it not? We want to choose. We want to decide. You don't have to teach your little sons and daughters how to act like little kings and queens and demand what they want when they want it the way they want it. So when we're kids, we talk back to our parents, and as adults, we go so far as to talk back to God. So, so, sometimes I've heard people say things like, when I get to heaven, God's going to have a few things he needs to explain to me. Guess what? It's not going to work that way. Here's what Paul would say to you. Who do you think you are? Who are you to challenge God? Who are you to talk back to God? How, how dare you, puny little human? That's a, who are you, oh man? You puny human to presume to talk back to the great, sovereign, almighty God. God gets the first word. God gets the last word. We dare not arrogantly challenge him. And so that's Paul's first rebuke to the question itself. Who do you think you are? Rebuke number two, who are you to question the creator? Look at, as he goes on in verse 20, well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The, the creature does not get to speak to the creator and question his choice in what he's made out of his creatures. That's not how this works. God does not answer to you, you answer to God. Back in, in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 19, Paul said, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Jonathan Edwards, who we mentioned earlier in his most famous sermon, many of us have heard the title of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You probably had to read it in high school. They probably lied to you about it. Had another sermon, though, called The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. You probably will not see that in your Christian bookstores next to your best life now or Jesus Calling. And then here sits the, 
The justice of God and the damnation of sinners. Jonathan Edwards. The the justice of God and the damnation of sinners is not going to be a bestseller. It cannot compete with the latest heaven tourism book or someone's made-up messages from Jesus to you. It just can't. So you're not going to see it in your bookstores. But Edwards challenging the unbeliever. And in Edwards' day, the churches were filled with people. Everybody went to church and they were filled with false converts. Now today, not everyone claims to be a Christian and not everyone goes to church, but our churches remain filled with false converts as well. And Edwards is challenging the unbeliever. He says this in his first point, if God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. In other words, Edwards says, don't worry, sinner, that God's not going to be fair to you. You're going to get exactly what you deserve. You will get exactly what's coming to you in the justice of God. And Edwards preached this then in the sermon, you do not think often of God. In fact, you think of him hardly at all except to blame him when things do not go exactly as you would like. You do not want to be with God. You have slighted God in thousands of ways throughout your entire life. Everything you are and have comes from God, but you have not been thankful for it. You have refused to hear God's call. You have heard the gospel preached. You have read the good news. You possess a Bible. Has God never spoken to you? Have you never felt your heart moved, your will challenged by these truths? Some in some parts of the world have never received these calls, but you have received them again and again, and still you turn a deaf ear in God's direction. You will not hear him. Why then should he hear you? Even if you should cry out to him in desperation on that last day, is God obliged to seek your welfare when you yourself will not seek it and in fact actually pursue your own destruction willingly? In other words, you can't look to God and ask him, why did you make me this way? When you've embraced your unbelief, when you've embraced your sin, and that is what the world has done. Those who are down in that pit, reveling in their sin, have no ability to look up out of the pit and say, God, why'd you make me like this? No, you're doing exactly what you want to do. God has not been unfair to a single person that has ever lived. Judas, the one set apart from destruction, God was not unfair to him. Pharaoh, who Paul just talked about earlier in this chapter, that God raised up for the purpose of destroying him in front of the whole world for God's own glory, God was not unfair to him. By the way, this verse doesn't just offer a rebuke to the unbeliever or the unconverted person sitting in the pew. It brings a strong rebuke to the believer who may be questioning God with the same attitude. Perhaps different questions, but the same attitude. Why did you make me with these strengths and weaknesses? Why did you give me this husband, this wife, these children? Why did you not give me a husband or a wife or children? Why did you give me these parents, this family? Why did you give me this personality and not another better one? Why did you give me these spiritual gifts and not these other ones that I wish I had for myself? The list of questions and accusations could go on and on and on. And God says through Paul, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Who are you to challenge God? 
God's wisdom, God's grace, God's mercy, God's righteousness, God's justice. Who are you to question the almighty creator of all things? That's Paul's second rebuke. His third rebuke then. Who are you to instruct the potter? Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, again, Paul's responses here reveal to us that the thing we're thinking he's saying that's causing us to bring these questions and accusations is exactly what he's saying. Otherwise, this response makes no sense whatsoever. The potter takes a lump of clay and he makes one thing for honorable use and he makes a bedpan out of the other one. And Paul says, isn't the potter free to do that? Can't he do that? And remember what we're talking about here as we read this. The potter, the lump of clay, one vessel for honorable use, one vessel for dishonorable use. We are talking about people. That's what Paul's talking about. This lump of humanity, and Paul says, this is for honor, this is for dishonor. The potter has the freedom to do whatever he wants with the clay. That's Paul's point. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't consult the clay first. He doesn't lean down to that lump of mud and clay and say, what would you like to be? Reveal to me your future. What is it that you're going to be? He doesn't ask the clay to direct him. He does not ask the clay to instruct him. He doesn't look into the, clay, into the clay's future through the corridor of time and see what that clay will become and then reverse engineer it into that. He makes of the clay whatever he wants to make of the clay, whatever he has purposed to make. The authority does not reside in the clay. The authority resides in the potter. But the human heart does not like this. It doesn't like the truth that drives this analogy, and it doesn't even like the analogy. We don't like to consider ourselves as common, shapeless mud, do we? We consider ourselves far better than that. We don't like to think of ourselves as helpless and depraved. We're too strong. We're too intelligent. We're too good for that. We're not some lump of wet mud deserving nothing. We are good, and we deserve good things from God. That's what's driving our human hearts. That's what's driving the world. We are all good people who are deserving of good things, and that sounds so good that it's all the non-Christian bestsellers for self-help, and it's all the Christian bestsellers for self-help. You're so good and deserving of good things, you just have to tap into that. The non-Christian says it's inside you and the universe is going to reward that. The Christian says God's going to do that because you're so special. And it sounds so good that we, we eat it up. And the only problem with it is the Bible, which says the opposite. Other than that, it's perfect. But that's not what the Bible tells us. What Paul's doing in Romans 9 is, is exposing just how unbiblical our thinking really is. Just how huge of a gap there really is between the mind of the clay and the mind of the potter. Because we, in our vast intelligence and understanding as wet lumps of mud, don't believe the potter has the right to make of us whatever he will. 
So Paul is exposing an arrogance in us. He's exposing unbiblical thinking in us. To drive this home even more fully in verses 22 through 24, Paul asks a question of his own concerning the doctrine of election. Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So again, let's, let's not forget that this is all connected. This is all of a piece that Paul's writing here. So, so the potter makes out of this one lump of humanity some objects for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. What is the dishonorable use? It's a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Just Paul's not going to give us any wiggle room to get out of this and be faithful to the text. Verse 23, and why, what, let me just start again in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us who he has called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. Paul, again, is not giving us any room here. He's making himself explicitly clear. What Paul is saying in Romans 9 is not difficult to understand. It may be one of the most argued about sections in all of Scripture, but it's not because it's hard to understand. It's because the human heart doesn't like it. Paul's turning our thinking upside down. The world tends to think of sin as being some kind of mistake that God allows to happen. If, if he only had more power, then he could, he could step in and he could stop all the sin and all the evil in the world. The world doesn't call it sin. They just call it evil or bad things or whatever they want to call it. In fact, this is the classic gotcha question for the unbeliever. It's called the problem of evil. This is the classic question that they level at Christians. If evil exists, bad things really do happen, and since bad things really do happen, God is either not all good, because if God really was all good, he would stop those bad things from happening, and he doesn't, or God's not all powerful, because if God was all powerful, he would stop those things from happening, and he doesn't. So he can't be both. He can't be totally good and all powerful, because evil exists. That's the big gotcha question. Okay, there you go, Christian. And to be honest, most of the theology taught in Christian churches across this country and around the world are teaching a theology that leaves Christians going, wait, that actually makes a lot of sense. Because the God I hear about on Sunday mornings and in my Christian books and in my Christian music, that God would never allow these things to be bad, these bad things. They are somehow outside of his power. However, Paul does not fall for this arrogant flawed human logic. Not at all. He does not take the bait. He says, no, in fact, sin and sinful humanity actually give God an opportunity to reveal his glory. This is not something that is happening outside the purposes and plan of God from before creation. Even God's anger, even God's vengeance, even God's retribution poured out on sinners will be worthy of worship. Because his perfect, just, righteous holiness will be displayed. And we will say with awe and reverence, God is just and justice will serve. We will worship God. 
for his wrath poured out on sinful humanity. That is every bit as much. God's righteousness, God's justice, God's wrath, God's vengeance are every bit as much a part of who God is as his love and his mercy and his grace are. John MacArthur says, just think of the imagery in the book of Revelation of God's wrath. The plagues, the fiery judgment, the curses of the apocalypse destroying perhaps billions of the world's population and Christ arrives carrying a sword, riding on his white horse. His power, originally displayed in creation, is equally glorious in destruction. It is an awesome sight as his vengeful, righteous, and justified conquest of all his enemies takes place. God is glorified in in this. The fact that our American version of Christianity won't allow for that should tell us just how deeply misguided it is, Just, just how deeply flawed it is, just how much the world and its thinking has been dictating to us what we ought to believe and glory in. Paul says in verse 22 that the glory of God will be seen in his holy wrath and his awful power to destroy. What does that reveal about God that we wouldn't know otherwise if it weren't for that? Well, Paul says in verse 23 that it shines a spotlight on the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. It's what God's revealing in all of this. John MacArthur says the primary purpose of salvation is not the benefit it brings to those who are saved, but rather the honor it brings to the God who saves them. Believers are saved without any merit or work of their own in order that God may have a means of displaying his mercy and glory and grace. Salvation is a matter of the glory of God primarily. If you're saved in part because of your baptism or church membership, you take away from his glory. If you are saved in part because of your good works, you take away from his glory. And if you are saved in part because of your free will, you take away from his glory. If you contribute anything, it is an offense to the sufficiency of the mercy and grace of God who redeems you all by himself. He does not share his redemptive glory with another. There's something else we need to see, though, about this contrast Paul is making here between vessels of wrath on the one hand and vessels of mercy on the other. It's something we might not catch in our English translations But at the end of verse 22, Paul calls them vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So does that mean, Paul, that you're saying God is, is, he takes this lump of humanity, he creates some vessels for honorable use, for glory, and he takes some other ones and he, he creates these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So does that mean that God is preparing people their whole lives for hell? In the same way he's, he's sanctifying the Christian and preparing us for heaven, is God that active in preparing the non-believer for hell? And the answer is no, of course not. 
He's not constantly exuding, exerting energy on the non-believer to make them rebel and sin as we've seen. They do that all by themselves. He does not have to exert any energy on that whatsoever. The Greek word here, the Greek verb prepared is in the middle voice in Greek. So it could be translated like this, the vessels of wrath prepare themselves for destruction. In other words, God doesn't create sinful men for hell and then make them sin continually throughout their lives. He simply leaves them in their sin. He simply leaves them as they are. And they willingly embrace what they are. They do what they want to do and they prepare themselves for destruction day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. This word destruction is in the perfect tense in the Greek. Perfect tense indicates that this destruction is a perpetual state. It's not a one-time event. They are preparing themselves to be held in a perpetual state of destruction. How horrifying. God's glory in his wrath will be maintained throughout all of eternity. What a horrifying thing that is. What a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God and not be counted with the righteousness of Christ. But notice how he speaks of this other group of people, vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the vessels of wrath prepare themselves for destruction, but the vessels of mercy cannot prepare themselves for heaven. God has to be the one to do that. So Paul says, if you're going to hell, you did that to yourself. But if you're going to go to heaven, then God's going to do that all by himself. You're going to go to hell all by yourself. But if you're going to go to heaven, God has to do that all by himself. And in all of these cases, God is glorified. In both cases, God is glorified by by whatever he makes of that lump of clay. That's Paul's point. The potter gets to do what he wants with the clay, and he's glorified in all of it. In the judgment of the unbelieving world, of the devil, of fallen angels, the power and holiness and glory of God will be revealed. And in the redemption and glorification of God's people, the mercy and grace of God will be revealed. But both things bring great glory to our sovereign God. This may be a difficult pill to swallow, but it's what Paul says, and he says it clearly. Let me me leave you, though, with this thought, Christian. When I was growing up, traveling with my parents, I listened to many hours of a prairie home companion, Garrison Keillor, this great storyteller, telling stories of this fictional town, Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, And Keeler, though, wrote about his childhood experience of being chosen last for backyard baseball teams, and he he writes this. The captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for a catcher, someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits the ball. They chose the last ones two at a time because they hardly matter, and it really makes no difference. Sometimes I would go as high as sixth choice, but usually lower. But just once, I'd like someone to pick me first and say, him, I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, you, come on. 
but I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. Believer, here's the reality. Here's the reality in God's sovereign electing grace. Think about this. God chose you with great enthusiasm right from the start. How good is that? How glorious is that? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, this same Paul writes, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He chose you, made you into a vessel of his mercy for his glory. That is the best news you could ever hear. You might ask, though, it's a good question and it's the right question. Paul exposes wrong questions that come from wrong motives the sinful human heart, but this is the right question. It's the question that is prompted by the Holy Spirit of God, and the question is, how can I know that I'm a vessel of mercy? If it's God's work to rescue some from that pit, if it's God's work to make of the clay, if he is the potter, making of this lump of clay some vessels for honorable use and some for dishonorable, some that are vessels prepared for mercy, some for destruction and wrath. How can I know that I'm a vessel of his mercy? Here's the wonderful thing, friend. The clay in the potter's hand that asks for mercy finds mercy from the potter. That's how you can know. If you come to Christ for mercy then you are a vessel of mercy, proven by your request. There's only one category of people that comes to the cross of Christ and calls to him for mercy, and it is vessels of mercy. All the people down in that pit are not calling out to God to free them from the pit. We saw that. Reread Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 if you question that. No, but the ones who call out to God for freedom are the ones he has freed Hear this good news from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So friend, come. If, if this truth challenges you, if it confronts you, if it worries you, come to Jesus if it's made you question this morning, what kind of vessel am I? Come to him. Call on him for mercy. He will hear you. He will have you. That is the spirit of God calling you to come to him. And those who call on the name of the Lord, he will save. And whoever comes to him, he will not cast out. And if you're thinking of your loved one this morning, again, this is often what's driving our problem with this teaching that Paul brings us. As we think of, of our loved ones who aren't walking with the Lord, and we're saying, what does that mean about them? Then friend, you have the gospel message. This gospel that this same Paul in this same book in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says is the power of God for salvation. Call them to come. 
Don't stop calling them to come. Don't stop praying for them. The whole reason we pray to God to save anyone is because that's really how people get saved. God does it. So you're praying to the God who saves on behalf of that one. And Jesus says, all that the Father have given to me will come. Call out to the Lord on their behalf. Call out to them as an ambassador of the Lord who has been entrusted with the saving, supernatural gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And trust God who is sovereign and good and faithful and know that he only does what is right. He only does what is just. He only does what is good. And he knows better. He knows better than we know. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this glorious gospel. Lord, it does confront our, our human understanding. Lord, but would you cause us to trust in your word, to submit our understanding to your word, to submit our very lives to you, Lord, to, to see you as good and glorious and just and righteous and faithful. The God whose steadfast love endures forever. Lord, we rejoice in you. We trust in you. We hope in you. And I pray, especially right now, for my brothers and sisters, Lord, some who are struggling, I, I know, with the words that our, our brother Paul has brought to us this morning, with these deep and challenging truths. I pray, Lord, that they would run to you. I pray that they would find in you the joy of your great salvation. Lord, these are glorious truths, and so we, we do not apologize for them, and we will not dance around them. We rejoice in them. We celebrate you, our faithful God. We celebrate you, our sovereign God. We pray, Lord, that in us, you would be glorified. And I pray for any, Lord, who have not come to you, that are hearing my voice, that you by your spirit would call them to come. As our Lord Jesus has said, that all whom the Father has given to him would come to him. That they would come to you and know what it means to be made to live. Know what it means to have the peace and security that comes from your promise to never cast them out. Pray, Lord, that you would do that for your own glory and for their eternal joy and the joy of all your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.